0: We have some prayer requests, as usual, and we're going to go ahead and lift them up before the Lord. But a great praise report from uh, Pete Gonzalez Sr. Uh, sent us a text about his son. Uh, that uh, The doctor said his he's doing great. His numbers are doing great. Um, he should be able to go to work and to church next month. And so, amen. <laughs> and so pete and pete jr want to thank you guys for your prayers and we've been praying for him since last year so it's been a long journey we do pray again for his continued recovery and that um god willing you know it'll it'll be the end of that journey uh for also kathy's sister chris she's had her last chemotherapy and uh, we're praying for her um recovery and her well-being and that uh, same thing for chris that uh, she's now on the mend and uh, just continue to get better and uh, that she can get back to, again, work in those things that uh, she's kind of not been able to do since she's been going through this time. Uh, pray for Chuck and Darlene. Uh, Chuck has cancer, uh, too, and uh, praying for his, uh, uh, God's hand upon him and to get him uh, through this time for him and Darlene and for strength. For the Mother's Day luncheon coming up in May, we want to pray that God would bless that time and for the marriage ministry at the end of this month that that they meet, and that God would just, you know, bless that time and strengthen the marriages, you know, in the church. So let's pray. Father, Lord, we first give you praise and honor, Lord, for what you've done in Pete Gonzalez Jr.'s life, God. We've been praying for him since last year, Lord, and, and he's been on this journey, Father, and Lord, it's just it's just marvelous to see what you do, and um, again we know that we've been praying, and we know that God, you are a, a prayer answering God, and so we thank you, Lord. We give you praise, and we pray for Chris as well, Lord. That you would be with her right now and strengthen her, Lord, and build her up, Father, spiritually and physically, Father, that she can uh, get back to those doing those things that God she's not been able to do. Uh, for several months God pray for Chuck and Darlene that you'd again be with Chuck strengthen him through this time and Darlene strengthen him physically and spiritually Lord uh, may, uh, may they be on the men. brother Rick from North Carolina struggling and uh, is asking for our prayer and that you'd be with him for the Mother's Day luncheon uh, bless that time bless all the ladies and the daughters that come Lord and the and, uh, Again, the speaker that uh, I'll be uh, glorifying to you, Lord, for the marriage ministry, for all those that will be there, God, and for Larry, that you'd be with him in and Carmel, and, and just <clears throat> bless that time together, Lord. Now, we ask that you would bless our time together here as we look into your word, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 47. Jeremiah chapter 47. We're also going to uh, go through chapter 48 tonight. And these chapters we've been looking at are covering the judgment, God's judgment on these cities that have rejected God and have worshiped idols, and, and God's bringing judgment upon them. And tonight, uh, chapter 47 is God's judgment of Philistia, and chapter 48 is God's Joab. Uh, a Mo, um, just judgment against Moab. Chapter 47 covers the prophecy, as I said, against Philistia. The Philistines were Gentiles. That is, they, they were non-Jews who probably migrated from the Aegean Islands for, again, we don't know, you know the reasons. But some of them are known also as the Sea Peoples who tried to settle on the uh, Egyptian coast. But Ramses III turned them away And they settled on the eastern Mediterranean coast, mostly in southwestern Canaan. And they became became the main threat to Israel until David conquered them. Not a lot is known about their language or their religion, though they were worshippers of Dagon, a grain god. Palestine got its name from them. By Jeremiah's time, they were only a small group of people on the coast and no longer a threat to their neighbors who were once the curse of Israel. David's grief for Saul and Jonathan would have applied to the Philistines in Jeremiah's time in Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel 1, 19, when he said, how the mighty have fallen, speaking of Saul and Jonathan. So let's begin in chapter 47 with verse 1. And it begins, The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet against the Philistines before Pharaoh attacked Gaza. So the message against the Philistines starts the same way that it did in chapter 46, verse 1, when the message of judgment came against the Egyptians. Look at verses 2 through 3. And thus says the Lord, Behold, waters rise out of the north, and shall be an overflowing flood. They shall overflow the land and all that is in it. The city and those who dwell within, the men shall cry, and all the inhabitants of the land shall wail at the noise of the stamping hooves uh, of his strong horses, at the rushing of his chariots, at the rumbling of his wheels. The fathers will not look back for their children lacking courage. So the same image of floodwaters that described Egypt in chapter 46, verse 8, is now used for the Babylonian army. They are the floodwaters. And after that, they will come in and, and cover the land. After King Nebuchadnezzar's victory at Carchemish in 605 B.C., he continued down the coastal plain as far as the Philistines' territory. And he returned to Babylon for a while in 605 B.C. after the death of his father, but resumed his campaign in 604 B.C. And the Babylonian chronicles record his capture of Ashkelon in 604 B.C. Like an overflowing river... He would overrun the land of Egypt and its people. The noise of galloping hoofs, as it says here in verses 2 through 3, and the rumble of chariot wheels would terrorize the Egyptians so much that the parents, when they heard the, 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 the sounds of war, they would forget just all of the natural affection that they have for their children and abandon them, trying to save their own necks. The weapons and the noises of war... They don't change very much, well, you know, they, and, and they do change, but the fear and the ruin that they bring, that never changes. Verses 4 and 5. And because of the day that comes to plunder all the Philistines, to cut off from Tyre and Sidon every helper who remains, for the Lord shall plunder the Philistines, the remnant of the country of Kaphtor, Baldness has come upon Gaza, Ashkelon is cut off with the remnant of their valley. How long will you cut yourself? Not only would the Philistines be destroyed, but anyone who tried to help them would be destroyed, like Tyre and Sidon. And the mention of Tyre and Sidon here may suggest that there may have been a partnership between those two cities, Tyre and Sidon, and the Philistines. And they thought that there was no past history showing that a partnership existed after 605 B.C. Kaftor, mentioned in verse 4, is usually identified with Crete, which is usually considered to be the place or origin of the Philistines. The Philistine group was made up of five city-states, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, Ekron, and Ashdod, as mentioned in verse 5. Geza and Ashkelon are singled out for their punishment in verse 5. And then verse 5 also mentions the baldness that has come upon Geza. Now this could refer to the total destruction of Geza <clears throat> or to be a practice of mourning that was common in, old, in the ancient East. Verse 5 says that Ashkelon would be cut off, which can mean to be silenced or destroyed. Verses 6 through 7 as we finish the chapter O you sword of the lord how long until you are quiet put yourself up into your scabbard rest and be still how can it be quiet seeing the lord has given it a charge against ashkelon and against the seashore there he has appointed it the sword of the lord mentioned in these verses is a symbol of judgment that's spoken of in verse 6 The sword can rest, or I'm sorry, the sword can't rest until its work of judgment was completed since it was the Lord who commanded or appointed it to attack Ashkelon and the coast. The prediction that Ashkelon would be silenced was fulfilled in 604 BC when King Nebuchadnezzar surrounded and took the city as punishment for resisting his authority and he deported those living there to Babylon. Now, Chapter 48 covers the prophecy against Moab. Moab was located on a high plateau east of the Dead Sea. And the Moabites were descendants of Lot. And along with the Ammonites, they were enemies of the Jews. Verses 1 through 10 covers the destruction of Moab. So beginning in chapter 48, let's look at verses 1 through 3. Against Moab, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel... Woe to Nebo, for it is plundered. Kirjathaim is is shamed and taken. The high stronghold is shamed and dismayed. No more praise of Moab. In Heshbon they have devised evil against her. Come and let us cut her off as a nation. You also shall be cut down, O madmen. Now this isn't talking about literally madmen or crazy men. Madmen is the name of a city. So again, verse uh, it says, "You also shall be cut down, O madmen. The sword shall pursue, pursue you." Verse three: A voice of crying shall be, uh, shall be from horror name, plundering and great destruction. So the prophecy against Moab starts out with a description of the destruction that's coming on Moab from God. The land is going to be invaded by an unnamed enemy who the Lord is going to send, and the cities are going to be broken down. But notice it says, Woe in verse 1. Woe was pronounced on the city of Nebo. All right? Nebo was a Moabite city east of the Dead Sea. It was a city given to the tribe of Reuben and Kirjath Jam and Misgab. All right? Also in verse 1. Now the word stronghold there is speaking of the city of Misgab. Let's look at now. Uh, so again, they would be Uh, And one of the saddest things, look at verses 4 and 5 now. Moab is destroyed. Her little ones have caused a cry to be heard. For in the ascent of Luhith, they ascend with continual weeping. For in the desert of Horonaim, these enemies have heard a cry of destruction. Again, one of the saddest things about war is how innocent children suffer. It says in verse 4, her little ones have caused a cry to be heard. They were weeping bitterly as the the result of war. And they would be led up to the city of Luhith on a higher elevation on the road down to Horneum. And these would be the roads going up to and going down from these cities that are mentioned here. Verses 6 through 9. Flee, save yourselves, and be like the juniper in the wilderness. For because you have trusted in your works and in your treasures, notice, you also shall be taken, and Chemosh, which was the god of the Moabites, shall go forth into captivity, his priests and his princes together. And the plunderer shall come against every city, and no one shall escape. The valley also shall perish, and the plain shall be destroyed, as the Lord has spoken." Give wings to Moab, Moab that she may flee and get away, for her city shall be desolate without any to dwell in them. The people were convinced to run for their lives and to become like a juniper, which is a bush, to, to run for their lives like a juniper bush in the wilderness. The meaning isn't sure, but it may mean that they would try to be inconspicuous so that they would, wouldn't be noticed. You know, It says, be like a, a, a juniper bush there in the wilderness. Moab's sin is told to us in verse 7. It says, Moab was really proud of its works and its treasures. And even though their chief god, Chemosh, again the god of the Moabites, would prove to be no help to them when his image is carried away like a trophy of war, along with his priests and officials, which was a common practice of victorious armies in those days. So the message should have been very clear to, God, to, to, to the Moabites. A God that couldn't save him, him, his own self, surely he couldn't help the people. He couldn't sh- help others. Listen to Isaiah chapter 41, verses 23 and 24 in the New Living Translation. God says, yes, tell us what will happen in the days ahead. Then we'll know that you are God's. In fact, do anything, good or bad. Do something that will amaze and frighten us. But no, you're less than nothing and can do nothing at all. And those who choose you pollute themselves. Judgment on Moab would be so complete that not a single town would get away from the destroyer. Nobody would escape, verse 8 tells us. And there's no hope in resisting. There's no hope to escape, all right? It, it, It requires the fastest way you can get out of the land. And the time will come when running wouldn't be enough. God says it wouldn't be good enough for you because your your enemies are so eager to chase after you, you'll wish you had wings to fly away, as it says here in the verses. Verse 10. Cursed is he who does the work of the Lord deceitfully. Now listen to this again. Cursed is he who does the work of the Lord deceitfully or slothfully. The word deceitfully means slothfully. And it says, and cursed is he who keeps back his sword from blood. The work of the Lord was to judge and to destroy Moab. So God says, cursed is he who does the work of the Lord deceitfully or slothfully. And cursed is he who keeps back his sword from blood. In other words, God has ordered the destruction of Moab by Babylon. So God pronounced the curse. On those who would do the work of the Lord slothfully. But you know what? This doesn't just apply to the Babylonian army here in our text. That goes for you and me today. There are those who do the work of the Lord deceitfully or, de- or slothfully. This applies to a lot of people. Who, who A lot of Christians in the church today. Many people are doing the work of the Lord, but many times we do it slothfully. Jesus said to the church of Laodicea, I know your works. I know that you are neither hot or cold because, you see, they're lukewarm. They're either cold or, or you know, they're not on fire or or they're cold. They're they're just lukewarm. Like many people are today. They're not really on fire for the Lord. You're not really pressing, as Paul said, towards the mark. When Paul said we're pressing towards the mark, the word pressing means to run swiftly in order to catch some person or thing. Paul said he was pressing towards the mark. Are we pressing towards the mark? Are we rushing towards that? Are we running swiftly in our service and serving God? Jesus has a place in your life. Your devotion to him is established, but he isn't everything in your life. And our attitude towards the Lord is just sort of, well, you know, if it's convenient. If it's convenient, I'll do it. As long as it doesn't interfere with, you know, other plans that I have. And the Lord so often gets our leftovers. The leftovers of our time. The leftovers of our energy. Of our devotion. And the Lord wants it all. He's a demanding master. And rightly so. He deserves all of us. Every single part of us. Because he gave all of himself for us. Malachi 1, 6 through 9 says this in the New Living Translation. The Lord of heaven's army says to the priests, a son honors his father and a servant respects his master. He says, if I am your father and master, where are the honor and respect I deserve? You have shown contempt for my name, God says. But you ask, how have we ever shown contempt for your name, Lord? You have shown contempt, God says, by offering defiled sacrifices on my altar. And then you ask, how have we defiled the sacrifices? Well, you defile them by saying the altar of the Lord deserves no respect when you give blind animals and sacrifices. Isn't that wrong? And isn't it wrong to offer animals that are crippled and diseased? Why don't you try giving gifts like that to your governor and see how pleased he would be, says the Lord. He says, go ahead, beg God to be merciful to you. But when you bring that kind of offering, why should he show you any favor at all? Ask the Lord. And so he says, Cursed is he that does the work of the Lord slothfully, and cursed is he who keeps back his sword from blood. So God is talking about those who won't stand up to do the work of the Lord. They're compromising. And then in verses 11 through 17, these verses cover the humbling of A complacent nation. Look at verses 11 through 13 now. Moab has been at ease from his youth. He has settled on his dregs, and has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into captivity. Therefore, his taste remained in him, and his scent has not changed. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I shall send him wine workers who will tip him over and empty his vessels and break the bottles. Moab shall be ashamed of Chemesh, of as the house of Israel was ashamed of Bethel, their confidence. Now, let me read these same verses uh, to make it a little easier to understand from the New Living Translation. From his earliest history, Moab has lived in peace, never going into exile and They never went into captivity. He's like wine that's been allowed to settle. He hasn't been poured from flask to flask, and he's now fa- fragrant and smooth. But the time is coming soon, says the Lord, when I will send men to pour him from his jar. They'll pour him out, then shatter the jar. At last, Moab will be ashamed of his idol, Chemosh, as the people of Israel were ashamed of their gold calf at Bethel. So what God was saying here to Jeremiah is Moab's character started developing in its youth. You know, just like a young child, their character begins in the early years of their youth. Moab had started out being raised with an easy life. Moab, God says, has been at ease from its youth. Moab never really had much problem. Never had experienced much trouble. They were rather secure. They got complacent. So from the beginning of the nation, they were at ease. So it was easy. It was an easy life for them. You know, they had a lot of rain, a lot of good soil. It got a a lot of good climate. You know, it produced a lot produced a lot of good crops. Farming was the main occupation in the ancient world because it was easy to grow things and have an abundance of food. They had a lot of idle time. So they've been at ease. Moab has, been, has had it easy <clears throat> ever since you know, they were in, in their early years. And they've settled. They've settled in their dregs. Now, verses 11 through 13 describe a wine-making process. Moab was wine country. So the people were very familiar with the wine-making processes. And Jeremiah uses those processes as an analogy for them, the Moabites. They, the Moabites, have settled in their dregs. Now the dregs would be the sediment that would form at the bottom of the wine, which they didn't want. So what they would do, they would then pour the juice, the wine, into another jug. And then the drugs from that wine that was poured in it, they would settle to the bottom. All right? So, so now those dregs, if you don't do this pouring out, continued pouring out from jug to jug, and, and allow the, 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 the sediment or the dregs to stay at the bottom, pour it out until you've poured out so much that all the dregs are gone. If you don't get rid of the sediment at the bottom of those jugs, and you pour them in with the wine, those dregs or the, uh, the, the sediment, they start to get sour. And as they get sour, it spoils the wine. It starts to give the wine a sour taste and it starts to take on, the wine starts to take on a rotten smell. So it was necessary as the dregs settled down at the bottom of the jugs, before they had a chance to really sour at all, they would pour the wine into another jug. And they would be very careful not to pour any of the dregs or the sediment into the second jug, leaving the dregs at the bottom, just pouring the wine off of the top. Then they would do that again. They would let it settle again and again the sediment. The sediment would then settle to the bottom and they poured out into another jug. So this was the process. The winemaking process was pouring the wine from one jug to another to keep the wine from settling in the dregs. That is to keep the sediment from, from turning the wine sour and to taking on the sour taste of the rottenness of the dregs or the sediment. So gradually, by this process, you would get a pure, clear wine that takes on only a lovely fragrance. So because Moab had been at ease from its youth, and this is the symbol of, of settling in its dregs, it was settling in its sediment, it was settling in itself, all right? It had settled on the dregs because Moab hadn't been poured out from vessel to vessel. They hadn't had difficulties, In other words, they've never had many disruptions. They didn't face many enemies. Their life was an easy life without many problems. Along with the abundance of their prosperity and a result of their weakness, they had settled in the dregs. They'd never gone into captivity. Therefore, you see, it says says that their taste remained in them. In other words, they had become rotten in themselves. It's, It's sent. Has not changed so moab's, Moab, moab's scent had not changed; it had a rotten smell rather than the fragrance of the good wine, so the people had begun to smell of themselves, and as a result, the days are coming. the Lord says that i will, i'm going to send wine workers who will tip him over and empty his vessels and break the bottles, according to verse twelve so so God would to bring you know, some difficulties in their life. They were going to bring some, you know, so some, 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 afflictions in their life that would help them, all right, to to grow and 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 to lose that 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 self sufficiency and, and that ease of life and that complacency that they had because they didn't have any difficulties. And, and you see, that's what afflictions do in our lives: problems and the things that we encounter, the the, the difficulties. that's like pouring us out from jug to jug and it's helping us to build our character and to to you know rely upon god and to be strengthened in the things of god and so that's what god was going to do to moab The, the babylonian army is going to come and they're going to drive moabites from their place of security and comfort he's going to drive them from their secure villages and and cities and they're going to wander in the wilderness So the Babylonian army will pour him, that is Moab, out and then shatter the jar. So this wine is going to be destroyed. This old wine is going to be destroyed. You see, if we're not emptied of ourselves from time to time, we never grow. And our scent doesn't change. Our settled life starts to stink. Verses 14 through 17. How can you say we are mighty and strong men for the war? Moab is plundered and gone up from her cities. Her chosen young men have gone down to the slaughter, says the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Verse 16, the calamity of Moab is near at hand, and his affliction comes quickly. Bemoan him, all you who are around him, and all you who know his name. Say how the strong staff is broken, the beautiful rod So the time was coming when Moab wouldn't boast anymore about the brave things, the brave acts of their soldiers that they did in battle. The one responsible for Moab's doom, verse 15 says, was the king whose name is the Lord of hosts. These words are a statement that the Lord is king of kings, whether nations or individuals acknowledge him or not. Judgment can come on the scoffer at any time. Just like Moab's calamity would come upon them quickly. And the nations around them were called to mourn for Moab. And they would acknowledge that Moab's scepter and staff were broken. Symbolizing the end of their power and their glory. Verses 18 through 25. O daughter inhabiting Dabon, come down from your glory and sit in thirst. For the plunder of Moab has come against you. He has destroyed your strongholds, O inhabitant of Aurora. Stand by the way and watch. Ask him who flees and her who escapes. Say, what has happened? Moab is shamed, for he is broken down. Wail and cry. Tell it in Arnon that Moab is plundered. Is plundered, And judgment has come on the plain country, on Holon and Jezah and Mephath. On Dibon and and Nebo and Beth Deblathain, on Kirjatham and Ben Gumel and uh, Ben Meon, on Kariath and Basra, on all the cities of the land of Moab, far or near. The horn of Moab is cut off and his arm is broken, says the Lord. These verses cover judgment judgment on Moabite cities, on the cities of Moab. The plunderer has done his job. The nation's inhabitants are no longer sitting on the top of the world, but they're now, as it says here, sitting in thirst. In other words, they're sitting embarrassed and ashamed. Moab's mightiest fortresses are destroyed. And when the inhabitants were fleeing, they were asked by the people of Aurora in verse 19, hey, what's happened to your city? And the cry of Moab is the cry of Moab is disgraced. Because he lies in ruin, it says, verse 20, he's broken down. The people are called to mourn, to cry, because city after city has been taken until not one is left. And as a result, verse 25 says, notice the horn is cut off and his arm is broken. The horn is a symbol of power and the arm is a symbol of authority. So their power is gone and their authority is broken. And then verses 26 to 30 covers the futility of Moab's disrespect. Look at verses 26 to 28. Make him drunk because he exalted himself against the Lord. Moab shall wallow in his vomit and he shall also be in derision. For was not Israel a derision to you? Was he, was he found among thieves? For whenever you speak of him, you shall, uh, you shall shake your head in scorn. Verse 28, you who dwell in Moab, leave the cities and dwell in the rock and be like the dove which makes her nest in the sides of the cave's mouth. All of this happened because Moab exalted himself against the Lord. And the Lord says, let him wallow in his own vomit, which is again a disgusting picture of its total disgrace. Moab's prideful attitude toward Israel has now come home to them. The one who skipped for joy. In in verse 27 in the King James, it says, those who skipped for joy at Israel's fate has become a mockery themselves. Those who are living in Moab are urged to fly away like a dove, flies to the rocks and to the holes in the mountains in verse 28, because why? Total catastrophe has has struck Moab. Verse 29 and 30. We have heard the pride of Moab. He is exceedingly proud of his loftiness and arrogance and pride and of the haughtiness of his heart. Verse 30, I know his wrath, says the Lord, but it is not right. His lies have made nothing right. Moab's disrespect would be silenced, and its boasting was just idle talk, and it wouldn't accomplish a thing. Verse 31 through 33, Therefore, I will wait for Moab, and I will cry out for all Moab. I will mourn for the men of Ker-Heres, O vine of Sidma. I will weep for you with the weeping of Jazir. Your plants have gone over the sea. They reach to the Sea of Jazir. The plunderer has fallen on your summer fruit and on your vintage. Joy and gladness are taken from the plentiful field and from the land of Moab. I have caused wine to fail from the winepress, and no one will tread with joyous shouting, not joyous shouting. In verse 31, Jeremiah seems to mourn personally for, for Moab. It seems strange that, Joab, that Jeremiah would weep over the downfall of Israel's enemy. But remember, Jeremiah had a tender heart. And Jeremiah weeps over the men of Moab. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 5 and 6, "...love thinks no evil." and does not rejoice in iniquity. Even though you know, Moab deserved what they were getting, Jeremiah had a tender heart for them. He didn't rejoice in it. Even though they deserved the, the wrath of God, he didn't rejoice in, in, in that they were getting you know, God's judgment. He had a, He's weeping for them. He cared for them. He had a tender heart for them. Jeremiah continues to describe the sad conditions of Moab that are going to exist there. He says the vineyards that had been so famous for their wonderful you know, quality of wine are hopelessly ruined or for their, their fruit. The orchards are stripped bare and their weeping and crying is going to be heard all through the land. And joy and gladness, according to verse 43, had stopped. Verse 34 and 35. From the cry of Heshbon to Alela and to Jehaz, they have uttered their voice from Zoar to Horoname. Like a three-year-old three heifer, for the waters of Nimrim also shall be desolate. Verse 35. Moreover, says the Lord, I will cause to cease in Moab the one who offers sacrifices in the high places and burn incense to his gods. So the cry of suffering would be heard from one end of Moab to the other as a result of God's judgment the Lord was going to put a stop to the idolatrous worship practices of all of those cities that have been mentioned here in the cities of Moab. Verses 36 through 38. Therefore, my heart shall wail like flutes for Moab, and like flutes, my heart shall wail for the men of Kir Haris. Therefore, the riches that they have acquired have perished. For every head shall be bald, and every beard clipped. On all the hands shall be cuts, and on the loins sackcloth. And general lamentation on all the housetops of Moab, and in its streets. For I have broken Moab like a vessel in which no pleasure, which in which is no pleasure, says the Lord. So Jeremiah's grief, or God's grief, would be like a flute, which was an instrument that was played at funerals. Mourning would be openly expressed on the rooftops and in public places. Moab was beyond hope. It was unwanted. It was like an unwanted and useless jar that has been broken and thrown away. Verse 39 They shall wail how she is broken down, how Moab has turned her back with shame. So Moab shall be a derision and a dismay to all those about her. So the mourning or this grief ends with a description of a shattered nation, shamed. And it was an object of ridicule and horror, you know, to what happened to them, to the nations around them. So Moab's downfall was caused by its pride, its excessive pride, its complacency complacency and its confidence in its idols. These were the same sins that brought Israel down that brought Israel's downfall, and our sins that are still displeasing to God today. God hates pride. Verses 40 through 47 covers Moab's punishment and restoration. Let's look at verses 40 through 42. For thus says the Lord, behold, one shall fly like an eagle and spread his wings over Moab, Kirioth is taken, and the strongholds are surprised. The mighty men's hearts in Moab on that day shall be like the heart of a woman in birth fangs, and Moab shall be destroyed as a people because he exalted himself against the Lord. The enemy is described as an eagle swooping down over Moab, and that was a favorite symbol of a conqueror. The eagle represents Babylon. Verse 42 gives us the reason again for Moab's punishment. Moab defied the Lord. Moab's soldiers would become fearful like women in labor at the sight of the enemy. And as a result of later invasions by Arabs, the Nabataeans, and the Moabites, they disappeared as a people, fulfilling Jeremiah's prophecy. Verse 43 through 46. Fear and the pit and the snare shall be upon you, O inhabitant of Moab, says the Lord. He who flees from the fear shall fall into the pit, and he who gets out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For upon Moab, upon it I will bring the I will bring the year of punishment, says the Lord. Those who fled stood under the shadow of Heshbon because of exhaustion. But a fire shall come out of Heshbon, a flame uh, from the midst of Sion, and shall deliver the brow of Moab, the crown of the head of the sons of Tumult. Woe to you, O Moab, the people of Chemosh, perish, for your sons have been taken captive, and your daughters captive. So there would be no escape from God's judgment. Flee from the army. God says here, notice, flee from the army, and you're going to fall into a pit. You climb out of that pit, and you're going to be caught up in a trap. Escape from the trap, and you're going to be surrounded by a fire. Escape from the fire, and you're going to be captured, and you're going to be taken away to Babylon. Your God, Chemosh, won't be able to save you from the destruction and the captivity that God has brought. And, you know, and that's the thing. Sinners need to face the fact there's no escaping God. There's no escaping his judgment. There's nowhere to hide when God brings his judgment. And for lost sinners today, their only hope is, is in faith in Jesus Christ. He's their only hope. He died for the sins of the world. And so they need to flee to Jesus Christ for protection from God's judgment. Jesus is the only refuge for our souls when it comes to being sinners. So after, writing, after the writing this long chapter on judgment, Jeremiah ends it with a promise. Look at verse 47 as we close. He says, Yet I will bring back the captives of Moab in the latter days, notice, says the Lord. Thus far is the judgment of Moab. So the prophecy against Moab has a surprise ending. It's a word of hope for future restorations in days to come. Now this statement refers to the future kingdom age when Jesus Christ will rule and reign. Now there's no reason for God's mercy on Moab as there is no reason for God's mercy on anyone. But we do know that our God is a merciful God. He is a gracious God. And the verse may have been intended to encourage Israel. Because if God God says here, hey, he would restore pagan Moab, then he could surely restore Israel, who are his chosen people. And the length of the message of judgment to Moab, it may have been intended to point out the seriousness of their sins of pride and complacency and their idol worship in order to teach the sovereignty of God over all nations and how all nations are accountable to him. Father, again, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for this powerful message, Lord. And, and again, again, may we glean, Father, from the things of your word, God. Again, teaching your judgment brought on by worshiping false gods. Pride, Father, complacency. Uh, all the things, God, that just that cause us to, to serve you slothfully, Lord father help us to to be reminded of those things god and to and to do the opposite of those things god that, that that bring your wrath and your judgment lord father you've done so much for us you're so good you're so faithful to us god you're so gracious and merciful god may we serve you father with 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 fervent hearts god with a fervency with a love and a service god that That puts you first, Lord. And so, Father, we thank you. We give you honor. We give you glory, Father. And, Father, may you just be worshiped by your people, God. And we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.